Welcome to a special edition of the Arthroscopy Podcast. This is part one of a two-part episode featuring Dr. Stephen Burkhart. We discuss his June 2020 article in Arthroscopy entitled, The Basis of Innovation, Depth, Breadth, and Tenacity. This article was adapted from the planned inaugural Anna Innovations Lecture. Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal Podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Greetings, this is Rob Hartzler with TSAOG Orthopedics in San Antonio. Today on the podcast, we have the pleasure of speaking with a man who needs no introduction to our listeners, Dr. Steve Burkhardt from San Antonio. Dr. Burkhardt is now retired from the practice of orthopedic surgery but he retains his role and title as the chairman of the board of BRIO, the Burkhart Research Institute for Orthopedics. Dr. Burkhart, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. Today, we're going to be discussing your article from the June 2020 issue entitled, The Basis of Innovation, Depth, Breadth, and Tenacity. Dr. Burkhart, this article was adapted from a lecture that was scheduled to be delivered at ANA Specialty Day 2020 is going to be the inaugural Anna Innovations Lecture Series. So uh, first of all, just congratulations for that. I think that's a wonderful honor that uh, Anna is giving to you, uh, remembering uh, your contributions to the field through that lecture series. Well, it is a great honor, and I really do appreciate the uh, invitation that they gave me. Um, it was uh, disappointing that the uh, Lecture couldn't be given, of course, because of the cancellation of special day due to the COVID virus. And uh, it, but as a result, I got to publish it in the uh, Arthroscopy Journal. I'm very uh, pleased that, that 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 occurred. And thank you for inviting me to be in this podcast. Well, certainly, with over 50 U.S. patents, 700 instruments and implants designed, three textbooks, and over 200 peer-reviewed scientific articles, uh, you're well qualified to uh, to talk to us about innovation, and um, I thought it was a fantastic uh, article. I enjoyed reading it, and certainly would encourage all of our listeners to uh, to go into that article, which uh, we're going to be uh, hopefully uh, adding some depth to and and some stories. And so, uh, again, we just welcome you to the podcast and thank you for your time tonight. Certainly. So, Dr. Burkhart, what I was uh, hoping that we could start out with was one of the points that you talked about in the article was a trend of uh, subspecialization, or you called it super specialization in medicine uh, versus having a broader type of uh, experience and practice, uh, those two competing um, aspects of expertise, depth and breadth. And um, I was just hoping that you would talk to us a little bit about how that played out in your career as it evolved. Yeah, you know, um, it's very interesting. I think a lot of what happens in many of our careers is sort of an accident and uh, a consequence of uh, running toward daylight, which is that famous phrase that Vince Lombardi used, said that the the great running backs would always run toward daylight, which was something they would just kind of almost instinctively see out of their peripheral vision, but not wasn't so much of a conscious act of going there. So, uh, you know, it was sort of an improbable journey from where I started to where I ended. I think, you know, I grew up in a small town, 
in a rural area of, of central Texas. Both of my grandfathers were in did farming and ranching, and so there was a, you know, I was had exposure to a lot of uh, sort of shade tree mechanics sorts of things, I suppose, where you had to fix things yourself and build things yourself as a kid, you had to rely on yourself. And then in college, I decided to uh, major in mechanical engineering, which was not standard at that time uh, as a, as a pre-med. And my whole reason for that was that I wanted to have a good and interesting job in the event that I wasn't able to either get into or afford medical school. And um, so I had that sort of a broad area of education and engineering, which is not something that most surgeons or doctors would have. Um, and then when I finished my um, residency at the Mayo Clinic in 1981, um, it was pretty heavily oriented toward total joints at the time. Although there was, uh, I got a, a good amount of trauma on a trauma rotation that I did. I felt that I was weak in sports medicine and I really was interested in sports medicine. So I did a sports fellowship and that was in Oregon with Dr. Uh, Bob Larson and his associates. And uh, that was at a time when people seldom did fellowships. So, you know, I had the engineering, I had the total joints, I had the sports medicine and Knee arthroscopy was just at, in its infancy at that time. Um, and in fact, at the Mayo Clinic when I was there, uh, the knee arthroscopy was all done by a rheumatologist, not even orthopedic surgeon. He would do a diagnostic arthroscopy. And then the, the next week or so, one of the orthopedic surgeons would operate on whatever he had identified. So if it was a bicondyl tear of a meniscus, then they would do an open meniscectomy the next week. So uh, it was very fascinating, though, for me to see what was going on with the knee and then to start in my practice. And, and uh, I came through my sports fellowship at a time when my mentors and my teachers were trying to learn knee arthroscopy. And, of course, shoulder arthroscopy wasn't even on the horizon. And so they couldn't really teach me to do it. So I was learning along with them on how to do knee arthroscopy and then had to continue learning in the early years of my practice how to do knee arthroscopy. So um, once I got into my practice though, um, a lot of it was, I would say the two heaviest uh, areas of orientation in my uh, first five years of practice were total joint replacement, primarily total hip and total knee, and also trauma. So ORIF of fractures. Um, I would do some some knee, some uh, shoulder, but it was open shoulder, and there wasn't very much of it at the time. My group wanted me to do the more difficult shoulders because I had done the shoulder rotation at Mayo Clinic, and they, for that reason, wanted me to do total shoulders. And since I had done the sports fellowship, they thought I should also do instabilities and rotator cuff. So. So that's amazing that there was so that there was not much shoulder work to do. I mean, because there's so much shoulder surgery now. It is it that the operations weren't thought of as being good. I mean, was it that surgeons weren't offering them? Is it that patients didn't trust them, and so they didn't 
so they didn't sign up for them? Why do you think that that was? Well, that, that's a very uh, interesting question. You, and, you know, you kind of take some of these things for granted when you think of it as having been in your own history, but you tried your best not to, to operate on instability. In fact, the conventional wisdom at the time was you could just reduce reduce the uh, dislocation and send the patient back into play and, and let them continue doing that. And it didn't matter how many times they dislocated. And there were always so many examples of the, you know, the 45-year-old high school football coach who had been dislocating for, you know, 25 years and he never had surgery. And, and uh, of course, he had an arthritic shoulder by then. But the conventional wisdom was you seldom had to operate on instabilities. But the big thing was the rotator cuff. When you think about now how the volumes of uh, rotator cuff surgery dwarf volumes for instability surgery. Well, rotator cuff surgery was considered to be somewhat risky, not for the patient so much as for the doctor, for the surgeon, hmm. because uh, you never knew when someone was going to get stiff. And once they got stiff, there was nothing you could do about it. And so open acromioplasty, open rotator cuff repair, um, the surgeons would be, they'd go into those with a great deal of trepidation because even though the surgery might go perfect, and even if they started on early motion, a lot of those people would get so stiff, and if they got stiff, they'd be upset. And there was nothing you could do because that was the days before arthroscopic capsular reliefs. So there was no you know, minimally invasive way to correct the, the stiffness if you got it. And certainly the open releases, which were written about in the textbook, nobody really did those because uh, that was just a huge operation. And, and then the other thing, if you look at another category, would be adhesive capsulitis. You know, the refractory adhesive capsulitis, now we'll do arthroscopic releases on. But there was no surgery that anyone would do for adhesive capsulitis back then. And of course, you know, kind of the narrative on that was that if you gave them two to three years, they would all regain their motion, which wasn't true. Uh, but that was what you would hear a lot from the, from the podium. Once people found out that I was doing arthroscopic capsule releases in, in the early years, the ones that had been kind of hiding their, their uh, stiff patients uh, started sending them to me. And I was with people that had had uh, stiff shoulders for five plus years and uh and they would do great in the early days you said that shoulder arthroscopy wasn't even on the horizon in the early 80s and i was just wondering how did that dawning happen you know if you can take us through just how you got started in it the first shoulder arthroscopy i did in my practice was after two years of, of being in practice it was in 1983 i started in 1981 and it was a high school baseball player who was a pitcher. And uh, he uh, was brought in by his dad. And uh, he had what they called in a dead arm. And that was really very poorly understood. That was early in the days of sort of diagnostic arthroscopy. I talked to them about people that I knew of that had done a few diagnostic arthroscopies and offered to because I wasn't the first one to do a diagnostic arthroscopy in the United States, but I talked about sending them to someone who had. And uh, the dad said, uh, well, why don't you just do it? And I told him, well, you know, I've, I've never done a shoulder arthroscopy. I do a lot of knee arthroscopy now, but I haven't ever done a shoulder arthroscopy. 
He said, well, I expect you'd be just about as good as anybody. Why don't you go ahead and do it? (laughs) (laughs) So not only did he give me permission, he sort of pressured me into scoping his son's shoulder. So I scoped this. He was a 17-year-old boy and uh, dominant arm, high school pitcher. Scoped him, and amazingly enough, he had a type 3 bucket handle tear of the superior labrum. And I thought, wow, this is going to be easy. It's like a partial meniscectomy. We'll just cut out the bucket handle. I use knee instruments. And and the kid did pretty well. I mean, he mm. didn't, he didn't uh, you know, become a professional baseball player or anything. But I, it sort of emboldened me then to start doing some other cases. Um, the problem is that I had I had discovered some pathology in that case. It was one of the few things you could deal with with knee instruments because it was excisional. And when you think about what you do arthroscopically, it's almost all repair and reconstruction. So there was there was nothing in the knee instrument uh, repertoire where you could actually re- repair or reconstruct anything at that time. So all excisional. So at any rate. Then I realized that, gosh, you know, uh, we're going to have to have some instruments to repair things. It's a whole different set of issues than what we've got in the knee. So at that time, you were only looking intraarticular and dealing with intraarticular pathology. Talk to us about the evolution of dealing with that to the rotator cuff where you had to be in a, in a whole different space. A really pivotal event. And as far as my career, occurred in 1984, and this was in the early days of Dr. Jim Esch's uh, shoulder shoulder course out in San Diego. And I was at that course in 1984, and uh, Dr. Harv Elman uh, had talked to me about how he had been doing some arthroscopic acromioplasties, and I really hadn't been looking up in the subacromial space, I'd, I'd put a scope in there a couple of times and I just saw kind of your classic uh, massive soft tissue from being too far posterior with my scope. So he showed me how he created a virtual space in the subacromial space, basically making as much space as he needed to see the acromion. But in the process of showing me that, I realized he could really see the rotator cuff well too. And so it immediately dawned on me that you know, that's the key. Now, we'll be able to repair the rotator cuff. It's just a matter of time. We need to have the instruments. But but Dr. Elman had just showed me how we could visualize whatever pathology we needed to see in the subacromial space. So that was really a pivotal moment for me. What about instrument design? You've designed so many instruments over the course of your career. What do you think about, um, you know, dipping your toe into that water and and, uh, describe that to us? So in terms of instrument design and, uh, you know, developing ways to repair things, um, by about 1987, I was doing arthroscopic side-to-side rotator cuff repairs. You have to remember that suture anchors didn't come on the market until 1991. So anything we would repair before 1991 would have been a soft tissue repair. And so these were a pretty small number of cases. They were typically side-to-side cases. And, um, but to, in order to repair them, you had to have uh, ways to uh, pass the suture 
and you had to have ways to, to tie knots. And so, uh, so I designed uh, a couple of rudimentary knot pushers and, uh, and uh, suture passers and showed them, showed my ideas to uh, the major uh, instrument companies, device companies of the time, and nobody was interested. Um, so I was kind of left to my own devices, so to speak. And uh, I identified a, an aircraft machinist in San Antonio. And the reason uh, I wanted an aircraft machinist to make these for me is they, it's well known among machinists that these guys can, can make small instruments, do very fine work. They have special lathes, so they have higher uh, tolerances. And so they can uh, make much smaller instruments and uh, a little more intricate than anything else we could have at the time. The other thing is that you need to remember, this was back in the day before any computer-assisted design or CAD programs for engineers, and everything we had to, everything we had to use or any instrument we made in those early days had to be be straight because it was made out of straight. Uh, uh, round or uh or square uh tubular uh bar stock and so uh it was just a stainless steel bar stock and it had to all be straight and so uh, they were very simple designs but that's how we how i got started and we used uh you know the the uh, same grade of steel that surgical instruments were made of uh, I didn't uh, design anything that was going to be left in the shoulder. These were just for passing instruments, tying knots. So then fast forward to uh, kind of the suture anchor era. So now we're getting into the point, we're getting to the point now where we're doing reconstructive and repair types of techniques. Really, I think became imperative at that point that we feel like we were conscientiously doing this and I felt this moral obligation to um, prove that what we were going to be able to do arthroscopically was going to be biomechanically and structurally equivalent to uh, the open uh, repair construct. So, you know, once we had the suture anchors and uh, I became adept at placing those, we did uh, bench work and, and biomechanical testing, cyclic loading tests on the transosseous repairs compared to the anchor repairs and actually showed the suture anchor repairs were uh, superior and they shifted the weak link from the bone to the suture tendon interface. Knots were very important and it's interesting that even before I started doing the suture anchor repairs, probably the first arthroscopic project that I became involved in was I developed a jig system and a suture passing system for doing transosseous arthroscopic cuff repairs. Tying an arthroscopic knot over a bone bridge is very difficult because part of what we depended on if you had a sliding knot was bring, bring it down over soft tissue and sort of bunching up the soft tissue to hold the first part of it. When you had, when you're tying over bone, whatever you had put down initially would invariably slip back a couple of millimeters at least or maybe more. And so I was having trouble solving that problem of how we were going to get that to hold. And so then I thought, well, it's just like a kid that's tying a shoelace. When you teach them to tie a shoelace, which they don't really do, I guess, anymore, but <laughs> the first half hitch and they put their finger over it and then they tie the bow over the top of that. And uh, 
So I thought of how we could could uh, basically copy that with an instrument and came up with this uh, six finger design so that we would have a slidable plastic tube outside of a cannulated uh, metal tube. And what I did was, I just happened to think of it one day, I went to the hardware store and got a piece of copper tubing, which was gonna be my metal tube. And then I uh, bought a caulking gun and I cut the nozzle off with a hole in it where it would be the plastic sleeve over the top of the of the uh, copper tubing. And then I got some fishing line and I found I could just tie knot, you know, knot after knot that was very secure and it wouldn't slip. So that was the, uh, and we called it the surgeon six finger uh, because it gave you an extra finger to tie, to, to push down on the knot inside the joint. This article, entitled The Basis of Innovation, Depth, Breadth, and Tenacity, was published in the June 2020 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal and can be found on the journal's website at arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes part one of this two-part episode on the inaugural Anna Innovations Lecture. Please join us in the future for part two of this podcast.